0: Good morning. There's a sheet on your table, so grab the sheet that's on your table. It should say, one in Christ. So we continue our study of Ephesians, and we're going to look at uh, verses 11 to 22 in chapter 2. By the way, so are there any questions from last week? It was, it was wild and rowdy last week, that's for sure. Any questions? Okay, so you have the, the text on the, on the sheet. We want to look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And I've entitled it, One in Christ, because that's precisely what the text teaches. So, starting at verse 11, they're on the, on the sheet. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision... Why would they be called uncircumcision? Because Gentiles weren't circumcised, okay? Jews were circumcised. So at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that means in your body, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that would be the Jews, because they circumcised, remember? Which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, you you have to actually take a knife And I have to actually do surgery and cut off a piece of you-know-what. okay. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. These are the Gentiles now. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You Gentiles having no hope and without God in the world. Now verse 13. But now, notice the language here. This is constant in Paul's letters. It's in Christ Jesus. So when you have the insomnia, sometimes like I do, get your Bibles out and then get your notepad out or your phone or however you take notes and just note every time that in Christ is used in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters. This is crucial here. So the Gentiles who've been alienated, apart from God and God's people, now in Christ Jesus. You, namely Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That would be his Good Friday death on the cross. Verse 14. For he, namely Jesus himself, is our peace, and he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. That means Jesus in his own body. He has broken down in his flesh, and that would, that would include his death and resurrection, the dividing wall of hostility, namely between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This would be like the dietary laws, etc. These aren't 10 commandments here, these would be the other commandments or the other mandates, like diets and um, that kind of thing that you find in the Old Testament. So he abolished those things. That he might do what? Create, notice, in himself, one new man in place of the two. So the two, you a Gentile Jew, now in Christ, one. So making peace and might reconcile us both, namely Jew and Gentile, to who? To God in one body. That's why the New Testament speaks of the church as Christ's body. And there's only one. There's only one church. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, namely between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you. Namely, you remember, folks, I can't help myself, but when you read the New Testament, the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, after Jesus rises from the dead on the third day, how does he always talk? Peace be with you. That's, that's, how, that's, how, that's, that's the language of the resurrection. Peace be with you. And so he brings peace between Jews and Gentiles. Anyone who's alienated are brought together and they're not at war anymore, but now at peace. Verse 18. For through him, namely Jesus, we, namely Jews and Gentiles, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you Gentiles, and of course it's always in Christ and faith in Christ, you are now fellow citizens with the saints, literally the holy ones. You're holy. You're a saint if you're a believer in Jesus. And members of the household of God built on what the church is built on what a foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being notice joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him again namely in christ there it is again in him or christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the big theme that I want to hit here is that we are all one in Christ no matter what your race, no matter what your nationality, no matter what your ethnicity. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all one. Let's read the comments, the ramblings that I've got there on the sheet. According to St. Paul, through faith in Jesus for salvation, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Now, I'm not, I don't think, I haven't done the DNA test. Maybe you have. But I would guess that if I have any Jewish blood in me, it would be very minimal, at least. I'm a Gentile, okay? So, according to St. Paul, through faith in Jesus for salvation, you and I, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what, when Paul says with the saints, that would include who? Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. Just name them. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this is what it means to be in Christ. So, reminding you of Ephesians 1, which we studied months ago, remember we heard that long run-on sentence, or a long litany of what it means to be in Christ in chapter 1. And I've just simply paraphrased it here in this paragraph. In Christ we are blessed. In Christ we are chosen. In Christ we are adopted. In Christ we are chosen. In Christ we are loved. In Christ we are redeemed. In Christ, we have an inheritance for which our baptism in the triune name is a down payment that guarantees our eternal and heavenly possession. Ephesians 1 taught us that, remember? And so all of this is only and always in Christ. Never in me, always in Christ. So now in Ephesians 2, which we just read, the Apostle Paul then expands on this theme of our being in Christ and he laserly focuses our unity then in Christ. So in Christ we are what? Citizens. We are citizens in the commonwealth of God. <clears throat> you may be a citizen of the United States of America and that's true we are, but we're citizens also of the house of God namely the church. Okay? In Christ we are members of God's household. In Christ we are living stones built into a temple. In Christ, we are the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. So there's one people, there's one family, and there's one temple, and it's always and only in Christ Jesus. Any questions so far? While I take a swig? All right, let's go to page two then. So then, in Christ, walls that divide people come tumbling down. Walls that separate people, walls that divide people, come tumbling down. Walls that exclude people and keep people apart from each other, they come tumbling down. In Christ, in the Old Testament, you remember there was a great wall. What was the wall? It was a wall that separated Israel and all the rest of the nations of the world. There was a wall that separated God's chosen people, Israel, and all other people, The wall was between the circumcised and those who were not. Got that? That's Old Testament. Circumcised, people of God. Not, you can't be. So God's law set the Israelites apart, consecrated them, made them holy. The law said, do not touch, do not handle, don't go near, be separate. I have paraphrased the Old Testament here. It set Israel apart from her Gentile neighbors, With a wall of commandments the Gentiles did not have to keep. Dietary laws I'm talking about here. Sabbath laws or feast days. So if you were an Israelite, you were different. That's the point. You were set aside from birth for a holy purpose. Namely, to be the bearer of the promised seed to the nations of the world. Namely, the Savior would come from who? The Jews. Abraham and his descendants. To be the womb. Israel was to be the womb that bore the Messiah in the fullness of time, Galatians 4. Israel was to bear the promise to Adam and to Abraham that through the promised seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, God would bless the nations, as Paul says in Romans 4. And so that's why the Israelites were set apart for that specific holy purpose. Side note, that's why why there shouldn't be any anti-Semitism you understand why because those those people were chosen by God for this purpose I just read here in this paragraph now don't misunderstand what I just said don't get the idea that you can be an unbelieving Jew and still go to heaven that's not true if you don't believe in Jesus you don't go to heaven no matter what your ethnicity culture the matter it's only through faith in Jesus that you're saved so I'm not, I'm not making the point that if you're a Jew and you're an unbelieving Jew, you're going to heaven. not making that point. I'm simply making a point that we need to realize that if you have Jewish friends or Jewish relatives or whatever that might be, don't fall for the anti-Semitism, especially now in America. Anti-Semitism is alive and well in America, in many parts of our country. Um, and the way that it's coming apart, the way that it's happening now that I have witnessed firsthand actually sitting in front of people talking about it. No joke. National s- Christian Socialism. Be aware of this. Especially among young people, young men, especially white young men in this country. White, and it's National Christian Socialism. Watch out for this. It, it can be rife with the anti, no. So here's my point. Knowing the fact that God chose the Israelites, to be the ones who would give the world the Savior, we see these people and thank God for them. And that means that when we talk with these people, instead of being anti-Semitic and blowing them off, for lack of better terminology, we speak to them about the promises that God made to them and what they were supposed to be about, namely, Jesus. So So if you have a Jewish friend or family member, you always want to try to bring a conversation around. Tell me about Jesus. What do you believe about him? so that you can bear witness that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And you can beg them, you need to believe in him. He's the savior, that's the point. And that's not anti-Semitic. Now I know the world would say that is. (coughs) Be aware, here's another side note, and I'm gonna move on. (coughs) What I just said, in some parts of this country among certain enclaves of people, politicians, bigwigs in this country, what I just said, namely, Witnessing to a Jew about Jesus is now considered to be what? Anti-Semitism. Be aware of that. I'm not saying don't do it. Just be aware of it. You may have to suffer. Yes? Pastor uh, Martin Luther also had some views on the Jewish people, right? Yes. Nothing that we should confuse with his right view of Scripture, but he was frustrated with the Jewish people. Yeah, so you're bringing up a very important point, Tracy. So... Lutherans are blamed very often for being anti-Semitic and being responsible for the Holocaust that happened in Germany in the 30s and the 40s. Because a lot of Lutherans in Germany follow this guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther later in his life said some things that were quite anti-Semitic. And he was wrong. <laughs> he was just dead wrong. And he needed to be repentant of that. If he were sitting here today, he'd say, yep. I shouldn't have said that. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Okay. So just be aware of that. That's another issue that will be raised. Oh, you're a Lutheran. You're one of them. You're like Luther. Well, keep in mind that Luther was a man, and he was a sinner, and he wasn't perfect. <laughs> I know that's hard for you L.C. Messers to hear, but that's true. Because we've got, a, we've got a, a window up front above the altar with his portrait. You might think, oh, my God, we worship Martin Luther. No, we don't. No, we don't. We realize that he was a sinner just like all of us. He needed Jesus more than anybody else. So thank you for raising that point. So we acknowledge that he was wrong. When people raise this issue with you, you have to simply say, yes, he said that. And he was wrong. (laughs) We don't believe that. Okay, good. Thank you. (laughs) Especially kids in school. I'll I'll bet Liam in high school probably hears this all the time from teachers. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. So if you're an Israelite, this is how you grew up. This, this wall of separation. Here's how you grew up. From your mother's knee, an Israelite perfected the discipline of not associating with the Gentiles, the unclean. That is the uncircumcised Gentile. So if you were a Jew or an Israelite, you wouldn't share a meal with Gentiles. You would not, more on that in a moment. You'll pick this up. You wouldn't share a meal with them. As a boy, if you're an Israelite, you wouldn't be allowed to play with Gentiles. You wouldn't be allowed to have sleepovers at the Gentile house. (laughs) And this is precisely why the Apostle Peter then, in the New Testament, had to receive a threefold visionary boot in the you-know-what. The expletive is uh, not said there. From the Lord before he would go to the house of the Gentile Cornelius. And even when Peter did this as the Lord commanded, he was still quite uneasy about it and quite verklempt as he stepped through Cornelius' front door. That's in Acts chapter 10. So my point is, is that in the New Testament, for a Jew then to associate with a Gentile who also believed in Jesus was very difficult. The wall that separated Jew and Gentile was hard to break down, even when a Gentile became a believer in Christ. And Peter had a huge problem with it. That's why he said he had to have a boot in the you-know-what by the Lord to do it. <laughs> yeah. Now, this, the fact that Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, heard the gospel and were converted caused Jewish Christians have unease about these people. So the next sentence is this. This caused such discomfort in the early church that there had to be a meeting in Jerusalem to, su- to sort this stuff out. And this is in Acts chapter 15. And when some visitors from Jerusalem came to Antioch to see what was going on, notice, remember if you were raised in this, we're like, you never ate with Gentiles. Okay, So when, when visitors from Jerusalem came to Antioch, Peter, what did he do? He got up from the table with Gentile believers in Christ, and what did Paul have to do? Had to rebuke Peter publicly, because Peter, again, was having this difficulty. I'm a Jewish believer. They're Gentile believers, but he grew up with this wall of division. And so, here he is, sitting with these Gentile unclean people, and then all of a sudden he gets up so that, you know... He isn't guilty by association. And Paul has to rebuke him publicly in front of everyone to say, knock it off. We can associate with these unclean people. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see that? Any questions about that? So watch this in the New Testament when you read this. And now as we study Ephesians 2, that wall in Christ falls down. But there was unease about it early on. So the old walls come down slowly and they come down hard. Well, why, why is that? Well, there's sin. Sin causes the walls to stay up or to go up. Our sin separates us from God and it also separates us from who else? From each other. Sin divides us from God and it divides us from other people. Sin drives a wedge between us and God. And so sin, what does it do? It leaves us alone in self-absorbed isolation. Let me illustrate that to you. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, after they believed the lie of Satan that you shall be as gods, God is walking in the cool of the garden, looking for them. And where does he find Adam and Eve? Hiding. They hear God walking, and they hide from him. They isolate themselves from because they have sinned. And so it divides them from God. God comes hunting after them, but they run. And they hide in the bushes or in the trees. And by the way, they're not having a second honeymoon in the trees. They are isolating themselves on purpose from the Lord. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. It was for the sake of sin, your sin, my sin, that God put up his own wall, formed his own gated community, if you will, called Israel, a nothing of a nation of nomads rescued from Egypt. Israel was a chosen people set apart for one holy purpose, namely to bring forth the Christ at the proper time. So when Jesus is born, what's his nationality? What's his ethnicity? He's a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day of his life. He walked on Israel's dry and dusty roads. In addition, he also walked in Samaritan ter- that was forbidden, and Gentile terrain. He didn't shake that dust from his feet, but he left his footprints there, namely in, in the Samaritan villages and the Gentile villages. He proclaimed the peace of God to those who were near, namely, his fellow countrymen, who often rejected him. And he preached peace to those who were far off, namely, to the Gentiles, who often welcomed him. He reached out to the Samaritan woman at the well, you remember, John 4. He let the bread from Israel's table fall to a Syrophoenician Canaanite dog. Now, just a clarification here. Dog doesn't mean ugly. You've all grown up when you hear, like in junior high. (laughs) Junior high, you called a girl you didn't like a dog because she was supposedly ugly. That's not what this means here. It means it means a non-Israelite. Dog means a non-Israelite, a Canaanite Gentile, someone who's unholy can't associate. But he does. Jesus does. He touched the lives of of life of Roman soldiers, synagogue ruler, tax collectors. He ate at the table of the priests and Bible scholars along with tax agents and prostitutes. He, now notice, Jesus embraced the excluded. And he welcomed them into the kingdom of God. See what he's doing? He's breaking the wall down. You, and you'll notice in the New Testament when Jesus breaks this wall down between Israelites and Gentiles. He is accused of being what? A drunkard and a glutton. Remember that in the New Testament? One way you can get rid of a preacher is say that he likes his alcohol too much. Right? How many, how many times have you heard that in Missouri Synod congregations? <laughs> now, that might be the case that the pastor wasn't drunk. But I'm going to have fun here just for the sake of fun. There's a reason why Pastor Coolman at the end of communion, does not drink the chalice dry. I'll tell you why. It's, it's the ushers that do it or the elder that does it. Why doesn't Kuhlman drink the chalice dry at the end of communion if there's more wine blood left? Because I know from experience that pastors who do that, what's the talk? He really loves his alcohol, doesn't he? No joke. That's not a joke. That happens in every Missouri Synod congregation. Every Missouri Synod congregation. That is why I purposely have the ushers drink it all. They can talk about the ushers that way. That's fine. <laughs> Danny and <Lee>, Lynn, that's fine. <laughs> now, having said that, let me, let me make a more important point. Just in case you, you haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to teach you this, I'll just take this as a, as a learning opportunity or teaching moment. Uh, if you've wondered why sometimes during communion, when pastor says, I'll put the Lord's body in your hand, and then I give you two or three pieces of bread. Okay? Or I may say, if some of you who drink from the chalice, I may say, very quietly, I'll say, the, the blood of Christ shed for you. And I'll say, have a big drink. <laughs> and people next to me are, are giggling when they hear that. Okay? Why, why is that done? Because we do what Jesus says. We eat it and we drink it so that there's nothing left over. We never want to have the issue of well, now what do we do with the consecrated bread and consecrated wine that's left over? We should never have that issue. And so we here at Trinity purposely do what Jesus says. Eat it and drink it. Does that make sense? So again, don't freak out if you're one of the last tables and pastor says, take a big drink. Or the elder may say, if you take from the individual cups, he may say, drink two or three, please. That's what's going on. That's, that's a, I hope that's helpful for you. Again, like we are, we are so unlike many congregations in the church. Many congregations in the church don't do this at all. And so what happens? And it should never, ever happen. And I'm not angry at you. I'm just passionate about this. They put the consecrated wine that's left over back into the bottle of unconsecrated wine. That should never, ever happen. But that is common in the church. Don't ever let that happen. So you altar guild members, don't ever let that happen. So let for if we have a guest pastor here, and some somehow it just gets forgotten to eat and drink everything, and there's leftover, you eat it and drink it in the sacristy. It's that simple. Why do we why do we make this so hard? Seriously. Now I've raised. Now maybe you want to react to that. I should I should give you the opportunity to react. Because you've all the you lifers in the Missouri Senate, that's the practice you've grown up with, namely mixing consecrated with unconsecrated. And since I brought this up, are there are there any reactions to that? Should I run for the hills? <laughs> uh, Dorothy? Well I grew up that there, there was wine left over. You poured it gently on the ground. Okay. Like do with That that's a nice, pious religion. So For those of you who didn't hear what Dorothy said, she grew up with the practice that whatever was left over of the wine blood, they would take and pour out on the ground. Is that what you said? That's a nice, pious, religious thing. And it sounds very good, doesn't it? But is that what Jesus said to do with it? You see, how how do you determine what to do in the Lord's Supper? You listen to the Lord. Our problem is we don't want to. It, but it's so simple. Eat it and drink it. So my first congregation that I served, the first Sunday that, I, that there was communion, we didn't have communion every Sunday, but the first Sunday that I uh, had to officiate with the Lord's Supper, I forget who was in charge, but they, perp- I'll just simply say this off memory. That we probably had maybe 50 or 60 for communion that first Sunday I was there, and they had prepared for like 150. So I consecrated 150 pieces of bread, and 150 individual glasses of, of wine, and guess what? We only used 50 or 60. Now what? This caused a, a big dilemma for me. And the practice at my first congregation was, what do, you, what do you think it was? Take the consecrated, pour it all back in the bottle. And of course, when I, when I addressed this issue pastorally and carefully, it was like I was the devil incarnate, you see. That's why I said, should I run for the hills? Okay. Yes. What do, you, what do you do like myself, if there's a half a pack and one left over, I can't drink. I would go home. I would be so busy I would be So get help. <laughs> so get help. But everybody's gone. Well, if ever that would be that would be a unique situation if oh, that would be a very unique situation. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say, Jill? Robin, Robin, Thanks, fine. <laughs> yeah, go get Robin at the house, she would be happy. <laughs> No, that, that would be just such a unique situation. I doubt we'd encounter that. I really do. Pastor were yes. higher things two years ago at that first. Oh, yeah. First. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they prepared chalices for 450 youth and, and leaders. Uh, actually, probably more 450 youth and then plus the leaders. But there were about 50 youth short at that particular time. They were coming later. So there was like, what, 10 chalices left <coughs> That were filled. So Pastor Fanker said, Pastor Coleman, Tracy, so and so, grabbed about five or ten men, and we all went over there and sat there and drank two glasses of wine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's difficult to do at these at these large conferences to prepare for communion. It's difficult to do. Right. So uh, on the one hand, you have to have mercy on these folks because that's not easy. No. Okay. In any event, and, and we were still, we were still, you know, uh, we still adhere to that principle. Yeah, just do it. Eat and drink it. it. That's right. That's what the church always did. The Lutheran Church always did this. It's just, it's just when all of a sudden, in Missouri, we just had a lot, I don't know, we were smoking dope in the 70s and 60s or what? Maybe so. Maybe you still are. Maybe it's the gummies. I don't know. Yes, please. Who shall Okay, offering the Lord's supper—that That's a long-standing tradition in the Missouri Senate. A long-standing tradition in the Missouri Senate. Well, at one time, it was four times a year. Four times a year. Then it moved to like two months or once a month, and then two Sundays a month, then three Sundays a month, maybe first, third, and fifth, to where in some congregations, it's every Sunday. So now, to put the best construction on this, I'll say two things to answer your question. Number one, early on, before there were automobiles, et cetera, a lot of congregations in the Missouri Synod, especially in rural America in the Midwest, they had to share pastors, and sometimes they didn't have a pastor every week. Sometimes the pastor only came once a month or once a quarter, thus four times a year. Then when they'd get their own pastor, then they would increase. The second thing, and again, this is to put the best construction on it, is Missouri Synod Lutherans have a high view of the Lord's Supper and a proper view of the Lord's Supper. And they take St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians very seriously. Namely, that if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And so they didn't want to do that. They wanted to prepare properly for the Lord's Supper. So one of the things that I think we have lost in the Missouri Synod with every Sunday communion is that. Namely, people would actually prepare To receive the Lord's body and blood. And let me give you an example of how that can be done. Take your hymnals on the on the tables, please. While you're I'll give you a page number here. It's gonna be in the three hundreds. Page three hundred and twenty-nine. Page three twenty-nine. Now again, what I'm doing here. Is I'm trying to answer your question, Michelle, and again, I said that in the Missouri Senate, even when it was just quarterly, or even if it was just once a month, these Lutherans in the Missouri Senate wanted to receive the Lord's Supper beneficially, and they actually prepared. Okay? And sometimes that would include, on a Saturday night, going to the pastor's house or study at the church and announcing for communion, which would include this. Individual confession and absolution. And then after the individual confession and absolution, the pastor would then ask, now is it your intention to receive the Lord's body and blood tomorrow? And if the person said yes, then he would say, now what do you expect to receive then? And what's the pastor want to hear? Christ's body and blood. And then he'd ask, for the forgiveness of your sins? And the person was yes. See the preparation that would go? Now today... I'm going to generalize to make my point. That doesn't happen anymore. Now, didn't you add a hand? That was the point I was going to make. I believe my father in law said in this church years ago, Saturday night, you, you go to the pastorate, and you have to prepare a work. Yeah. Day, which probably could have involved private the confession. That's correct. Didn't always have to, but it, it could. And so, again, I'm doing a long answer to your question, is that in the past... Even when Missouri had Lord's Supper quarterly, monthly, or maybe three times, they prepared. Now, having said that, and before we look at this on, on the on hymnal, on it is a wonderful thing that we offer the Lord's Body and Blood every Sunday, because some people work and they can't be here every Sunday. So imagine if you worked a lot and communion was only once a month, you might miss communion for a year or two, right? Okay, so what's happened in the Missouri Center over the last 50 years, is pastors have been patiently and carefully teaching about the Lord's Supper, what it is, and the benefits. And guess what? People in their own congregations come up and say, Well, let's have it more often than Reverend. And the pastor says, Woohoo, let's do it. Okay? Now, so Missouri Synod Lutherans would prepare. And here's one of the ways that they could prepare. Because remember, in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says that a person should examine himself before he comes to communion. By the way, side note: That's why you don't give communion to infants. Because they can't do that. Okay. And this is one way you can examine. So look at the questions. Number one, you believe you're a sinner? <laughs> that can't be said today. But, but you see, why would that be the first question right out of the chute? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Because the Lord's Supper is for what kind of people? For sinners. It's given for them for the forgiveness of their sins. Now you can look at this, the rest all on your own, you see. But this is how they would prepare. They took it seriously. And I think we need a renewal of that. Yes? Also on page 308 and then the front of the hymnal. Our prayers, right? Prayers for preparation before you go. Correct. So take a look at that, page 308. I don't know if we still have it in the bulletin. We used to, and it's periodically. There's a prayer that's in the bulletin that goes something like this. Lord Jesus Christ, let your let your supper or holy supper be my heaven on earth until I enter heaven. Some of you might remember. So page 308 for right reception of you see that, and you can go to the front cover of the hymnal. And you have the same thing, don't you? Yeah. Before communion, very front inside cover. Yeah, it's a different prayer. Yeah, but it's different collect, right? So I would encourage you to make this part of your piety. Prepare, because what I've discovered now again. I hope this is helpful for you. I really do. I will never forget one of the first, these people are no longer alive, but one, one of the first families I met here did not believe that they received the body and blood of Jesus in communion. No joke. Members of this congregation did not believe that. And I had to have a very, very hard conversation with them. And it went like this Then I'm going to encourage you not to come to communion anymore. And boy, that's when the atomic blah bomb hit. Now, was Pastor Coleman just being an SOB? Well, I am, but was at that time, I was, I was trying my best not to be. It was high pastoral concern because, if, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you don't believe you're receiving the body and blood of Christ in communion, you sin against the body and blood of Christ. And I took them to that passage and showed them this. Nope, nope, nope. Well, what happened is, to make the long story short, they just simply transferred to another LCMS con- congregation. Okay? And so I told the pastor that they transferred the congregation. I said, these people don't believe that they received the body and blood of Christ for communion. He didn't care. He didn't care. So that was really bad pastoral care on his part. It not even. I hope that is somewhat helpful for you. Did I answer your question, Michelle? Another question. Just a clarification. Okay, please. Yeah, right. So let, you got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's just take the time to look at it. I've referenced it. Let's just take a look at it. Let's take the time. So take your Bibles on the table, 1 Corinthians 11. If you got it on your app, on your phone, be my guest. <coughs> now I'm going I'm to answer your question in this way. I'm going to draw a box on the board, Kimberly. So we know from Scripture that what you get in communion are these four things. Bread, wine, and with the bread you receive Christ's body. With the wine you receive Christ's blood. We know from Matthew chapter 26 that it's for the, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's Matthew 26. Now at Corinth you had people coming to communion, who believed this about the Lord's Supper. I'll make a box. Now you had some people at Corinth who actually believed this, right? But there were other people at Corinth who were coming to communion to believe this. No body, no blood, no forgiveness. All there is is bread and wine. That's it. And Paul calls this unworthy eating and drinking. And if you come to communion and you believe this, there are consequences. So let me back this up before we read the text. Let's say for the sake of the discussion that Liam believes this in contrary to God's word. He comes up and I give him, so he comes up for communion. Liam, even though he believes this, does he receive the body and blood of Jesus? You better believe he does. But because he doesn't believe what Jesus says, that's the sin. That's the sin. Let's read the text. So Paul has to address this at Corinth. Verse, Let's start at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. How does Paul address this issue right here that I wrote on the board? This particular issue. He takes them to the Lord's words. Check it out. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Oh, and I can't help myself. That's what kind of talk? That's gift talk. So you know the Lord's Supper is pure gift from Jesus to you. My body with the bread for you. So again, the direction in the Lord's Supper is this direction. That's the direction of the Lord's Supper. He gives you a gift, his body. Let's keep going. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup. And a cup would be a cup of wine. Because when he instituted the Lord's Supper, it was in the context of the Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, it was always a cup of wine. They didn't have unfermented grape juice. That's another issue, by the way. Don't ever let a pastor use grape juice in communion. Yeah, but I'm a recovering alcohol. Well, then don't drink then. If you're so afraid that you're going to fall off the wagon by taking a sip of wine, then simply don't drink right now. Maybe in the future you will. But don't give people grape juice. Why? Why? Because Jesus used what? Wine. wine. Now, let me, let me push this point to the hilt. So we'll, we'll, you, we'll talk about it this way with baptism. And you guys have heard this a million times. You're going to roll your eyes. But that's, the way, that's what you get. So so Jace knows this. Liam knows this. You guys all know this. Cami and Brian, you all know this. You all, it's, it's tattooed on your brain. Ladies, you know it. That if, if you go to a so-called baptism and the pastor uses the right words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but doesn't use what? Water. Is the person baptized? No. Nope. So the pastor may be cute or may he may be asked, pastor, you know what, let's use confetti for our baptism, shall we? Or let's use rose petals, because that's really neat. If you change what the Lord gave you, or instituted like in baptism, if you change it from water to something else, you, pardon my, my Wyoming's leaking out, you ain't baptized. Similarly in the Lord's Supper, if you say, if you say that this is evil in and of itself, and therefore we're not going to use it, and we're going to change it, and use grape juice, then you are no longer having what? The Lord's Supper. This happens in Missouri Synod congregations probably more than you realize, brothers and sisters. Don't ever let that happen here. Man the lifeboats. That's what I'm trying to say. If, if they have an allergy, then they then just, just, don't, do it. just don't, don't drink it then. It's just better not to That's alcohol. right. Don't change what Jesus gave. But we, we, now, putting the best we, we in love, want to help people, right? We're well-intended, we're well-meaning, and then what do we do? We get rid of what the Lord instituted. That's the danger. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, so, for example, if somebody, and I don't know if people are allergic to wine, are they? I was more thinking, like, the bread. Well, the bread, we do our best yes. in to have bread with a with a non-gluten kind of material. That's what we do here. There for is people. Some people that are There's to non-social wine. wine. Yeah. 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 So, Okay. So if, if it's worst case scenario, just don't eat and drink. If that's the case. But we're not going to change what the Lord instituted. That's my point. But because you showed up, you still did the same forgiveness, right? Even if you don't eat and drink? Yeah. yeah, you sure do. And the gospel preached and the absolution. Right. Yeah. There was another hand. I it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. I thought I was like... Well, I'm going to answer Kimberly's question now. You, I, you had another question, but I answered Okay. So... He takes them to the Lord's words to address this problem. Body with bread. Cup of wine, he says, this is the new covenant or new testament in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So receiving the gift, then there is also this movement here. When you come to communion and believe this, you are. do you realize you're preaching a sermon when, you, when pastor says, the body of Christ given for you, you say, amen. You're preaching that I trust only in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And you're proclaiming his good, uh, good Friday death counts for me. That's what Paul means here, until he comes on the last day. Now here's the kicker, Kimberly. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that's this. Not trusting what the Lord says is then guilty of what? Sinning against what? Bread and wine? No, Paul says, against the body and blood of Christ. And to make the long story short, he says, verse 30, that's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. There are concepts. So if Kuhlman, let's, Liam will pick on you again. (laughs) Liam Liam believes this, and I know it. Let's say, I know it. Come on up, man. I don't care what you believe. Come on up. He actually receives this, not for his benefit, But he eats and drinks judgment upon himself, sitting against the body and blood of Christ. And that's why the danger is, when you take a holy thing and treat it as unholy, it's like Steven Spielberg's movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the Nazis finally get the Ark of the Covenant and they open its lid and they think they'll be able to control the world, what does it do? It melts them, kills them. This holy thing, the Ark of the Covenant, when they misuse it, it kills them. Similarly in Lord's Supper, one of the most holy things you can actually receive. If you if you don't eat and drink beneficially, it will harm you. We don't want that to happen. I don't want people. So that would be the most worst thing I could do for you. That's the hor- most horrible pastoral care I could give you. Yeah, come on up. I don't care what you believe. And by the way, generally speaking, that's American Christianity. We don't care what you believe. You just come on up. Because what? We're so afraid of telling someone what? They're wrong. No. No. I'm not going to give you communion. We're so afraid of that. We fear people more than... We fear what people will think of us versus who. You understand my point? Well, that was a long, long... Boy, it gets wild and woolly in these Bible classes. Where does it say it's glass in your belly? Well, that's my language. Oh, okay. So Kuhlman will sometimes... I actually have used this based upon 1 Corinthians 11. When somebody insists they believe in this and they insist in coming to communion here, I will say, if you come up to the Lord's table and I give it to you, it will be like glass in your belly, which is my way of saying it's going to harm you. Don't eat glass, by the way. But that's what that's what will happen. <laughs> yes. It's not like Thomas' disbelief, right? Because he didn't. He didn't. He wanted to put his put his hand in the in the nail marks. It's like people would say, well, no, it's bread and wine. I don't see it turned into the body and blood. Okay. So do I, do yeah. I not believe? Did I believe that Jesus misspoke? Do I believe? You know? Yeah. Did? Two things. Piggybacking on what you just said, Tracy. Number one, how did God create the world? How did Jesus create the world? He spoke. He spoke. Let there be light. Boom, light. How did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he get out a stethoscope and his surgical knives? Did he hook him up to the electrodes? How did Jesus raise? Lazarus, come forth! He spoke. And it happened. God's word is powerful. It does what it says. It gives what it says. So when Jesus says, this is my body, it is. And the Sunday school answer is because he said so. His words do and give what they say. Now secondly, I hope you don't misunderstand what I've just done here. I want you to understand that what we just observed is we want people to take communion. We do. But we want them to receive it beneficially. Okay? Does that make sense? So that's why Pastor Kuhlman, even though we have Lord's Supper every Sunday, Pastor Kuhlman is very concerned that you actually believe what Jesus says. <laughs> Any questions on that? We've got to quit. I'll finish this next week, okay? The unity in Christ. Thank you so much. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.